years, but it's been even more uh, of a, a growth spurt here lately. And so if you would, please make room for our visitors and our guests by scooting in and maybe scooting up if, if you would do that for us. It's an exciting time in the life of our congregation, and we are excited about the possibilities going forward. But if you feel a little overwhelmed coming in by, you know, the size of the crowd or perhaps, you know, trying to find a seat and all that, please understand, I'm overwhelmed too. You know, I, I'm trying to figure it out, and our elders are, are also talking and, and discussing ways in which we can accommodate our growth. You know, uh, in the school business, they always talk about uh, seating capacity on buses. And they say you can seat this many, but what they don't tell you is that they are, they are basing that on three people sitting in a seat on a bus. And that doesn't happen. That's not comfortable. And so what our congregation can seat based on the standard is not always what's comfortable. We want to make you as comfortable as possible while you're here, and we're trying to, to do that, and we're talking about ways moving forward that we can do that. But we are glad you're here. In the meantime, if you would, kind of our, our, our own members, if they'll scoot up and kind of scoot in and make room for people. And if you're visiting with us, I would like to say that we are in a series that's going to last this entire year called His Word. It comes from a devotional book written by many preachers, where each week we're taking a section of Scripture, several chapters at a time, and it all culminates on Sunday morning with me picking a passage and, and focusing in on that uh, passage in the morning. This morning we're at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And you know, it brings up the question in my mind, what do you think our first century brothers and sisters would think if they were to walk into one of our worship assemblies on Sunday morning? What do you think they would think? First of all, to walk into a building would be different, right? But to walk in and see pews and to see, you know, a communion table with do this in remembrance of me etched across the front, to see Chris or any preacher standing behind a pulpit, that would be different because we often associate church buildings with the furniture. That would be different. The fact that there is a Bible in front of you, in the rack in front of you, a completed Bible. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't have the completed Bible in its entirety like we have today. That would be different, right? The different versions of the Bible would be different. The fact that we have a time where we observe the Lord's Supper, the elements might be a little different, right? The, the fruit of the vine might seem a little watered down to them. And there are other things like our singing, right? I can't get this thing to stay on my ear. I have skinny ears, I guess. When it comes to singing, singing in the first century often constituted chanting. There was no four-part harmony. So if you, would, if you were to think that, that Paul, when he was in Troas, stood behind a pulpit while everyone else sat in a pew and stared forward and watched the songs on the screen... At the end of his sermon, they all sang Amazing Grace for the Invitation song and then had announcements and dismissed. If you think that's how it went, you would be sorely mistaken, right? We have changed. It's not that people in the first century didn't have their traditions, because they most certainly did. We are a tradition-rich people, and it's been that way since the beginning of time. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. Traditions can be good things, right? Can you imagine if we came together every Sunday with no traditions? How would we function? It would be chaos, wouldn't it? 
I mean, the fact that we have traditions that tell us what we do when we gather together week in and week out makes it easier for us. It's matters of expediency that we're talking about, right? We are a tradition-rich people, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because traditions are not evil in and of themselves. However, we have to admit that tradition can occupy, occupy a harmful place in our lives. And Jesus had something to say to some people who had become so beholden to their tradition that it occupied a harmful place in their life. Look with me at Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you, I've given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, I don't care. Actually, that's not what he said, but that's basically what he means. He said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. You know, I used to think that the Pharisees and the scribes were just rotten to the core and that they were just totally inherently evil. I used to think that because of the descriptions that Jesus would use for them. Brood of vipers, hypocrites. But if you do some study and you do some history and some looking at the context of the Pharisees and the scribes, you, you see that at least in the beginning they had a goal that was somewhat worthy. The idea was they did not want to transgress God's law in any way. They didn't even want to come close to doing that, so they built these fence laws around the, uh, the law itself so that they would not even come close to violating what God commanded. Here's the problem, though. Over time... These laws, these fence laws that they devised became binding. They were not things that God had talked about. They were not things that God had given. They were the tradition of the elders, if you've heard that phrase before. You have to understand the law is breaking, broken up into two parts for the Pharisee or the scribe. You have the written law, which is scripture. And then you have the oral law, sometimes called the Mishnah. And the oral law, these traditions of the elders that, that it contained, were these fence laws or these hedge laws that the Pharisees and the scribes came up with in order to keep from violating the real law, the written law, the one that God really cared about. The problem was, over time, the oral law gained the same footing and was placed on the same level as the written law. And that's where the problem came in. One such tradition was that of ceremonial cleansing. You see, to the Jews, 
it was of utmost importance that you be clean before you come to God. But that definition of cleanliness took on many different forms. But the idea was you do not come before God unclean or impure. Because if you do, then God's not going to bless you. And one of the ways that they tried to make certain that they were clean before God was through ceremonial cleansing. So before a meal, they would take a quarter log of water, which really equates to about a whole eggshell and a half an eggshell of water. I know that's kind of silly, but that's, that's how it was. That's how it was measured, right? And so this water would be poured over their hands with their fingers pointing upward. And the water would be poured over their hands at least to the wrist, and then it would drip off. Now be careful, because you couldn't do this, the water would run back down and thus be unclean, right? So it had to be this way. Once that was done, you repeated that action with the fingers pointed down, and then you would take your fist and you would rub each hand clean. Now, for the strict Jew, this was not only done before a meal, this was done before every course of every meal. Because again, cleanliness was of utmost importance. And there were many things that could make you unclean. A dead person, touching a dead person would make you unclean. Touching a Gentile, like you and me, would make you unclean. If you were a Jew and you touched me, that would make you unclean, right? Uh, certain animals, certain foods could make you unclean. Now, it was easy enough to avoid those things, at least in theory, but in practice, not so much. Because Let's say you're at the busy marketplace, and you're walking through the crowd. How could you ever know if your cloak touched someone who was unclean? The very dust that the Gentile walked on would be rendered unclean, and you're walking on that same dust, right? So it was very hard, almost impossible, if not impossible, to determine how you could ever be totally and completely clean. So they went through these, these various washings over and over again. Now, it's vitally important to understand that these traditions, as silly as they may seem to us, were considered to be, as I said, on equal footing with the written law of God. All the ceremonial cleansing was considered to be just as binding as the Ten Commandments. So washing your hands before a meal, something that they devised, would have been just the same, on the same level as you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, all those things. Same level. For the strict Jew, this was life and death stuff. Even though God had said nothing about it, this was life and death stuff. There's even an account of one Jewish person who was thrown in prison. And in prison, he was only given water and bread once a day. And instead of using the water for hydration, he used it to clean himself before he ate the bread. Because he said he would rather die than violate the tradition of the elders. That's how beholden they were to, these, to this oral law. Yeah, you know, I could ask you this. Based on our definitions of liberal or conservative, what would you consider the Pharisees to be? Now understand, liberal and conservative are terms I don't really like because they're very fluid, right? We, we, I mean, it depends on who's defining them as to, you know, I, I've told you before, as a minister of the gospel, I've been considered liberal and conservative, and so it, it just depends on who's doing um, the defining, right? But based on our definition, would you consider the Pharisees to be liberal or conservative? 
I think a lot of people would say, well, they were staunchly conservative, right? I mean, they crossed every T, they dotted every I. I mean, they were nothing if they were not legalistic. But what makes you a liberal scholar or a liberal in practice? How about adding to the Word of God? That would make you liberal in your scholarship, wouldn't it? In your practice? Binding additions on other people? Finding loopholes in the written law so that you don't have to obey them yourselves? That's not conservative, folks. That's liberal, right? Isn't it interesting how many Christians today accuse other brethren of being pharisaical when it was the Pharisees who were the liberals of their day? They were the progressives of their day. Kind of like the preacher friend of mine who he went one summer down to a, a, an encampment for teenagers. He was asked to speak there. This was in Pecos, Texas, outside of Pecos, Texas. If you ever been to Pecos, Texas in the summer, um, you know, it's like a 210 degrees, I think. And uh, that's the average temperature. And so he was down there, and he went down there dressed nice, but, you know, somewhat casual. And one of the older gentlemen there took him to task. And he said, you know, you're the most liberal guy we have come and speak at this camp. And he was shocked. Why would you say that? Well, because you're the only one that doesn't wear a tie. And he said, I actually think I'm more conservative than you are. And he said, really, how would you say that? He said, because I don't believe in adding to God's word. And that's what we're talking about here with the Pharisees, adding something that is binding on, something, on someone else, and God had nothing to say about it. If God has not spoken about it, for you to make a word where God has not and bind it on someone else, that's not good theology. In fact, that's not good at all for anybody, right? To tie burdens on someone that God has not even spoken of. You know, when we talk about terms like liberal or conservative, you know, you sometimes hear people say things like, well, I'm just a staunch conservative. And that makes me nervous. Because, especially in spiritual terms, the people that I have come across, by and large, who say that they're staunchly conservative are people who are rather illogical and unreasonable when it comes to Scripture. It's the same as the, the person who comes to me and says, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty progressive, I'm pretty liberal. I had a gentleman tell me that after I spoke one, one Sunday at a, at a church in a gospel meeting. I came down, and the youth minister comes up to me. He goes, you know, I, I'm, I'm just pretty liberal. And I said, pretty? No. Liberal, maybe. But what does that mean? Why is that your calling card? We're, we're too labelistic in the church. How about you just be biblical? How about that? How about you read the Bible, you apply the Bible to your life, and be that, Right? Instead of always looking for some outside label. In Matthew chapter 15, this is what Jesus is dealing with. He is dealing with Pharisees and scribes who ask the question, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They are drawing a line. This line in the sand has everything to do with their traditions. And there could be absolutely no compromise here. This is not just a collision between the Pharisees and Jesus. This is a collision between compromise and tradition, and one had to destroy the other. You know, there's a, an article I was reading on the web, uh, internet the other day about this woman in Great Britain who spent $90,000 to change her appearance. 
she spent $90,000 on cosmetic surgery because, as she claimed, she was ugly and couldn't find a mate. So she found someone to marry her. True story, they had a child together, and the husband was so upset that the child was so ugly that he claimed that she had had an affair. And at that point, she came clean. And she said, I had all this, this surgery done. I, I haven't always looked this way. And, and the article said that the husband felt very betrayed. And it just reiterates what we already know is that you can change the outside. You can gloss it and you can spit shine it, but what's on the inside is what really matters, right? You can dress up and you can do all sorts of things to change your outer appearance. And you can get those six-pack abs if you want, but it doesn't change the heart, right? It doesn't change what's on the inside. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, again, talking to the leaders of the day. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too, outwardly, appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees and the scribes were all about keeping up appearances. Theirs was a religion of externals. And so the long robes, the tassels, the phylacteries, the disheveled face when they, were, when they were fasting, all of it was to bring attention to themselves so that people would respect and honor their piety. But Jesus comes along and he says to these people who have set themselves up as the as the religious gurus of the day, they are sitting at the top of the food chain and everybody looks up to them and respects them for their knowledge and their religiosity. And Jesus comes along and says, I wouldn't respect them. I wouldn't look up to them because they're not living it. They look the part, but inwardly they are full of dead men's bones. They look pretty on the outside, but inside they are ugly and full of rebellion. And imagine Jesus coming along and cutting the legs out from under these religious people. They had everything working in their favor, didn't they? I mean, the system was set up beautifully for them to succeed and to have the places of honor. And Jesus comes along and completely cuts their legs out from under them. No wonder they were angry with Jesus, right? He ruined the fun. He ruined their system. So that's where we're at here. That is the dynamic that we see. That's the context of Matthew chapter 15. He's pointing out the silliness of their traditions. He's pointing out the fact that God said nothing about the Mishnah. God doesn't care about your oral traditions. God cares about the written law. And so he's bringing this to light, but these experts in the law were not happy about it. They were, they were king at finding loopholes in order to, to transgress the law and to, to make themselves have an easier time obeying. It says... In Matthew 15, 3 through 6, And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourself transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help has been given to God, he is not honoring his father or mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. It was a commandment from God that you were to honor your mother and father. 
what the Pharisees had done is they had devised a way in which you could give what excess you had to support your parents in their old age to the temple treasury. So that when your parents came to your house and said, look, we're getting old, we're, we need help, you could say, I've already given my money to the treasury, sorry. And then after they died, you could reclaim it. That's horrible. It's disgusting, but that's what Jesus is dealing with here, is people who had found a loophole to not have to obey what they were binding on everyone else, and that is just the written law. That's what they should have been doing. There were all these other oral traditions that they had added that God had said nothing about. And then they had the gall to ask Jesus why his disciples were breaking the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands. Notice that line. And this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Over in Mark chapter 7, verse 9, it reads, He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Do we do that in the church? Do we invalidate the word of God for the sake of our traditions? Back in the 1800s, you might remember the name David Lipscomb, a bulwark of faith many people uh, acknowledge, a a strong Christian man who had a great influence on the church. Back in the 1800s, more and more was being learned about communicable diseases. And so many churches went away from one cup to using multiple cups to serve communion. David Lipscomb didn't like that. And the reason he didn't like it is because we'd never done it that way. Remember the white tablecloth we used to place over the elements used at the Lord's Supper? You know why we originally did that? Tradition is because it kept the flies off the communion elements. But as it was removed, more and more folks got upset and were willing to split over the removal of a cloth. There is a church that for many years practiced dropping your collection or your your contribution, I should say, in a box at the back of the church building because passing trays was a liberal innovation. Now these things seem silly to us, but I'm sure you could come up with hundreds of others that you have witnessed, maybe even that you have held tightly to that you now realize, okay, that was silly at the time. We all have similar stories. Here's the thing. Church buildings are not a doctrinal matter. When we meet is. That first day of the week that we come together for worship is a doctrinal matter. What time we do, it's not. Observing the Lord's Supper is a doctrinal matter. Where it's placed in the order of worship is not. Singing is a doctrinal matter. We are commanded to sing, but whether we sing using a song book or words projected on a screen is not. Being the church that belongs to Jesus Christ is a doctrinal matter. Having a sign out front that says so is not. My friends, there have been churches that have split over the knots that I just mentioned. When PowerPoint was first introduced, 
There were many Christians who were up in arms saying it was a liberal digression. We harp on stewardship and how we need to take care of the Lord's money, right? As if it becomes the Lord's money when we give it to the church. It's always the Lord's money, but we harp on stewardship, right? And yet there are many churches that are moving away from pews and using chairs instead, and some would say that's a liberal innovation. Have you done the cost analysis for how much a pew costs versus a chair? But we have our traditions, don't we? We have our doctrinal matters, and many times we elevate them to the level of Scripture. And by doing so, we have invalidated the Word of God. We invalidate the Word of God for the sake of our tradition. You know, through the years, churches have split or have died where they sat because they could not make the distinction between a tradition or a command. And sometimes it's not a bad tradition, it's just we get so bent out of shape and we don't even know why. Like when we say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, I've seen Christians get all bent out of shape because the one leading the public prayer did not say in Jesus' name to conclude. And you ask them, well, why do we need to say in Jesus' name? What does that mean? I don't know. We just need to say it. Do we even know what that means? What does it mean to say in Jesus' name? Do you know the meaning and significance of that at the end of a prayer? It's to say that we are doing all in the authority of Jesus Christ, that we are placing ourselves under his lordship. But we just see it as an addendum at the end of a prayer. It's a tradition. It's a good tradition. But you're not going to hell if you don't say it. And the people who criticize those for not saying it sometimes are the people who don't even know why we say it to begin with. It was never meant to be an addendum at the end of a prayer or a phrase that we say. There's meaning and magnitude for saying in Jesus' name. Should we say it? Yes, it's great. But understand why you say it instead of just believing it needs to be there because we've always said it, right? Listen to this. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Folks, justice, mercy, and faithfulness are people-related. Tithing, mint, and dill, and cumin are not. In fact, the law didn't even require you to tie the tiniest mints from your herb garden. But they were so meticulous, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were tithing even the tiniest amounts of things while being cruel and arrogant and unmerciful and unjust. I think Jesus' message screams loud and clear. This spirit is not completely dead. Unfortunately, there are those in the church who wear the right clothes. They put their check in the offering plate. They attend both times on Sunday, but they are rude to the waitress at lunch on Sunday after church. They are a pompous jerk at work. They make a fool of themselves if they yell at the ref and the coach at the basketball game. It's not about what you do only on Sunday. It's about who you are when you scatter from this place. It's not just about at, outward actions or, or appearances. It's about our actions during the week as well. Again, Jesus is driving home the point that the externals mean nothing if the heart isn't right. 
No matter how valid your traditions may seem, they are completely worthless if they ignore the greater virtues. If you want to criticize someone for not saying in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, you'd better know why you're criticizing them, and you'd better come with love and respect, right? Understand why it is we do what we do. And understand that traditions are just that. They're traditions. Don't make them more than what they are. Read a little further in Matthew 15. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus' primary concern wasn't washing your hands. His primary concern was the heart. It wasn't even the traditions of the Pharisees. That wasn't his primary concern. It was the heart. How we act is not the most important thing. You believe that? How we act is not the most important thing. The most important thing is why you act. Why do you do it? What is the heart of the individual who is doing the action? That was the heart of the matter with the Pharisees. It's not about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside. Of primary importance to our Lord was not the state of people's ritual observance, but rather the state of their hearts. In fact, the Pharisaic traditions had nothing to do with religion anyway, and our traditions can be the same way, can't they? When ritual overrides heart, it becomes the same. When we glorify tradition rather than glorifying God, that's where the problem comes in. Look, I'm not saying that traditions are bad in and of themselves. Many of them meet a great need. The invitation at the end of a lesson that I'm about to give is a tradition. We could just sing a song and I'm not give an invitation and that would be okay. It's a good tradition. As we said, saying in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, not only is that a good tradition, that's a good, wholesome, scriptural thing to do, but understand where the place is in our lives, in our church family. Understand the place that traditions occupy. Don't make them more than what they are. And certainly, certainly we should never cause dissension within our family because of them. Let me get out of the way so you can see this. Anybody ever seen this picture? It's hanging in our office lobby in the new building. This was painted by an Egyptian artist by the name of Safwat. And the title of it is First Day in Heaven. Look at this picture. And now that you know the title of this picture, think about that for a moment and reflect on that. Because, folks, this is what it's all about. As, as church members go to battle over the color of carpet or, or the paint on the walls, this is what matters. Church people get all bent out of shape and upset over the silliest of things. 
They get offended over the silliest of things because their traditions were violated. And, 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 you know, Christians won't talk to each other passing in the hall because of silly things. This is what matters. We have forgotten what the end game is here. We've forgotten the prize. Folks, all of this ends in heaven. That's the end game. The end game is the beginning of an eternity. The prize is this. You, me, and God. And if we're going to scuffle over silly traditions here on earth, what's that say about us? Are we heavenly focused people? Think about your first day in heaven. Go ahead, close your eyes. Think about your first day in heaven. Close your eyes. What is that going to be like? What is that going to be like? Write that image on your heart. Paint that picture in your mind. Keep it in your heart. Keep it in your spiritual wallet. And every time that you feel tempted to be disgruntled by something that's, that's non-material and non-eternal, remember your first day in heaven. That's what matters. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for our church family. We thank you in particular for this church family, God, who is so loving and so warm. It's a good time in the Oldham Lane Church family. It's always a good time, though, Lord, to reflect on our spirituality, reflect on who we are and what we're what we're about, and understand that there's a bigger picture. May we never make the mistake of the Pharisees. May we never invalidate the Word of God for the sake of our, our traditions. May we use our traditions as a way to keep order and expediency, but never make them our God. You're our God. And we are so blessed to have you as our God. May we be a church that always seeks to please you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a need this morning that we can help you with, we are, as I said, a loving church family that would love to pray with you or help you get on track spiritually. If you'd like to study the Word of God with someone, learn what it means to be a New Testament Christian in the New Testament church, then we'd love to, to help you with that as well. The invitation is here. Luke's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you come as we stand and as we sing.